One of the biggest dangers when speaking about people with multiple health and social needs is the temptation for shorthand and to use descriptions that, while efficient and maybe and maybe even accurate, have a tendency to dehumanize the individuals. Hotspotters, frequent flyers, high utilizers, heavy users, the 5% that are 50% of healthcare costs, all those terms, well, they inadvertently can become kind of insider language, even as the people focused on these populations with high levels of needs are trying to widen the circle of support and the understanding of what ails some of the most vulnerable patients. That's why I'm really grateful for the discussion we're about to have on this edition of WIHI, because it's anchored in real solutions for real people, with both innovation and compassion as driving forces for change. So welcome to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We've been going at this for over two years. We're offered biweekly and also for your later listening and convenience as a downloadable file via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Life is hard for many of us, but life is really, really, really hard for certain people whose health burdens uh, can be equally matched by day-to-day difficulties and dramas most healthcare systems aren't really equipped to deal with. And even when caring health professionals go the extra mile to make referrals and phone calls on behalf of patients with a lot of instability in their lives, there are no guarantees the outreach will be effective. So are there more sustainable, affordable practices for healthcare, for communities, and for the patients themselves? And the good news is the answer is yes. With me by phone are three people I wish we could spend hours learning from. They are truly on the cutting edge of finding broad-based solutions for patients with multiple health and social needs. Catherine Craig is Director of Health Integration in Common Ground's National Programs. Some of you may know of Common Ground. Uh, it is really an amazing organization working to uh, end homelessness and working on permanent housing. Catherine works with communities engaged in the 100,000 Homes Campaign. That's an initiative of Common Ground and is faculty for the IHI Triple AIM Initiative. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks for having me, Madge. Terrific. Maria Raven is an emergency physician at Bellevue Hospital in New York City and an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the NYU School of Medicine, among other things. Her research focuses on patients who rely heavily on the healthcare system for multiple needs. Welcome, Maria. Thanks so much, Madge. Terrific. And from London, I, Garrett, is that where you are? Are you in London? <laughs> I am indeed. Okay, welcome. And uh, somebody, uh, Gareth Perry here at IHI said I should refer to you as Garrett Lewis. Do I have that sort of right? I'm very impressed, yes. Okay. That's right, that's the Welsh pronunciation. Thanks. All right, I'm trying. Welcome to Garrett Lewis, a public health physician and senior fellow at the Nuffield Trust. He has spearheaded amazing work with virtual wards at the Croydon Primary Care Trust in England, and we're going to hear more about that in just a moment. There are more detailed bios of all of our guests, and I think if you Googled any of their names, you'd find out a lot as well. So welcome, Garrett. Thanks very much. Good evening from London. Okay. Oh, right. It is evening there. Thank you. (laughs) So we're going to get started. And um, I am known for uh, picking off kind of hefty topics for WIHI. That's partly because we're trying to sort of get everybody's blood going, and we hope you'll use this program really as kind of a trampoline to learn more. Um, So first off, in that spirit of asking big questions that I'm looking for some quick observations on, I'm going to just go around the table, as it were, and ask my three guests the following question. Coordinating care for people with multiple social and health needs is hardly a new area of concern, nor has it lacked a lot of attempts at innovation programs over the years, although at least in this country, much of it has often depended on soft money that uh, or grants, etc., that at some point go away. So what is different today? What is changing? If you had to kind of sum up kind of the new mood, the new idea, the new possibility, Catherine, can I pick on you first? Sure, yeah, I think um, in in my eyes, the difference seems to be in a real willingness to collaborate between different sectors. So um, in our experience with the Triple AIM and the campaign, we're seeing that people with these multiple social and health needs 
basically by definition have needs that fall outside of what healthcare is set up to address. So this willingness to partner with community-based organizations who are taking on those different um, obstacles to good health, like housing, as an example, um, is, is a really refreshing thing that we're seeing, where healthcare is partnering up with community-based organizations to really improve the health of people with multiple needs. Okay, thank you. Catherine Craig. Maria Raven? Yeah, I definitely agree with Catherine. Um, I think something else, you know, I think that we've... Um, come to the realization that well it sh- everything should be about prevention in an ideal world we're not completely there yet and um, you know people have been talking a lot about the 80-20 rule in healthcare where 20% of the patients account for 80% of the cost and even smaller segments of patients accounting for greater segments of the cost and most of those patients are the really heavy utilizers that I think people are realizing that that's where a lot of the savings can come from and thinking about new ways to create um, reimbursement schemes to support providers um, and other people in healthcare to make it worth people's while to try to focus on better caring for some of the individuals that are um, generating the highest cost in the healthcare system. Okay, thank you very much, Maria. All right, Garant, uh, what, what would you say uh, from, from your perch? <laughs> Uh, so I'd say one one thing that's quite interesting is that many industrialised um, com- uh, countries are, are facing this same issue, and I think the reason uh, this is coming to a head is a mixture of of two problems really and one solution. I think the first problem is the issue of, of demographics. We know that all of our populations are becoming older, and that more and more of us are living with with chronic diseases. So that will be problem one. Problem two is that the money's running out. Um, in in my country, in the UK, our healthcare systems having to make savings of up to about 20% in the next four years, which is a huge um, uh, funding squeeze. Uh, and even, even in the U.S., where um, the, the percentage of, of U.S. Uh, money that's being, uh, GDP that's being spent on health is, is, is rising so much that everyone's recognizing that we need to, to cut costs. So those would be the two problems, but I think the, the, the interesting solution is that technology is improving, um, both the technology of being able to identify who these high-cost individuals are in advance, and we'll be talking a bit more about that later, but also some of the technologies that enable us to deliver healthcare out in the community more successfully without the need for, for a hospital physical building. Okay, thank you so much. All right, Gannon, I think I'll start with you this time for one more question before I'm going to really sort of ask each of you to give your best uh, succinct uh, kind of uh, uh, you know explanations or descriptions of the work that you're most involved in right now. But one more que- question will go around the horn. Gannon, what? Who are we talking about? Who, who, I started off by saying, you know, that there's some dangers to start stereotyping uh, folks or, you know, making the individual, the, you know, nicknamed the problem. And, uh, but who are we talking about? Sure. So, so we know that the, the costs of healthcare um, are distributed in an almost exponential fashion. So there's a very small number of people that are costing a huge amount to the healthcare system. Um, that's reflected by these various statistics that you've heard speakers talking about. So there's the 80-20 rule, um, and it's roughly about 5% of the population accounts for about 50% of healthcare costs. So I think what we're interested in is because that distribution is so highly skewed that there's a real opportunity for the very high-risk individuals where we could potentially afford to spend quite a lot of money on preventive care for these people to improve their quality of life. And if at the same time we could reduce uh, their rate of hospital use, then potentially we could make net savings. So if you like, that's a win-win because we're improving the quality of life for these patients, but we're making net savings overall. One thing I would add, though, is that we should always keep an eye to the future. Uh, There's a statistical phenomenon called regression to the mean. What that says is if you look at the distribution today and you repeat that observation in the future, the individuals who today are at the extreme, in the future they will come back down towards the population mean. So what that means is that rather than trying to focus our efforts on who's having lots of hospitalizations at the moment, we should be instead concentrating at next year's population at high risk. Uh, And that's why this technology 
methodology of predictive risk modelling, uh, for example, allows us to identify who next year's high-cost individuals are, and we're going to be much better placed to, to, to concentrate our preventive efforts on those individuals rather than the people who are costing us a lot at the moment. Thank you, uh, Gerrit. Uh, Maria, anything you would add to that in terms of who we're talking about? Yeah, I think, you know, depending on where, again, depending on your vantage point, we're talking about different subpopulations, and I don't think um, you can just say they're one specific group. But I think, from my perspective, there are a couple different sort of buckets, if you will, of patients. Um, I think there's some, pa- and I think there's some patients. It's important to keep in mind that you can sort of do something about, and some that maybe you can't. So I think you've got patients that are at the end of their lives that are, um, you know, racking up a lot of costs due to a lot of very expensive end of life care. And I think you know the. Um, Dartmouth Atlas has shown us that we spend a lot of money on end-of-life care. Same with um, very early in life care, neonatal care. Um, a lot of the end-of-life uh, care that's given, I think, is often due to a lack of um, advanced planning and advanced directives. So I think that's a real area for intervention, um, you know, before it gets to that point with people and a, and a big opportunity for savings because it's been shown that a lot of end-of-life care that can be delivered outside of the hospital or palliative care can improve um, end-of-life course and also reduce costs. I think we're beginning to show geographic concentration. I mean, one of the really interesting thing in Atul Gawande's article that you referenced is that, you know, basically in New Jersey and Camden, they found a couple buildings where these high costs were concentrated, and those are some real areas where you could make a huge difference. And then I think we've got a real problem, at least in the U.S., with how we deal with patients with co-occurring disorders, and I'm talking about substance use, active substance use, and behavioral health disorders in addition to the kind of standard chronic diseases like congestive heart failure, um, you know, COPD, things like that. We just don't have great ways to deal with those patients in a sort of one-stop shopping kind of way that a lot of them need. And I would definitely put homelessness in that category, too. Okay. Because yeah. when you have that, it, it, it makes everything more difficult. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, Catherine, uh, to you now, are we, um, it does, does all this, anything you would add in terms of the who, who, who we're talking about? Uh, well, from, from my vantage point working with 100,000 Homes Campaign Communities, what, what we've noticed is that when we offer two different interventions to people experiencing homelessness, when we offer permanent housing and connection to wraparound coordinated primary care, um, these individuals who tend to be quite ill, so living with at least one chronic health issue, if not more, um, often living with a co-occurring mental health or substance abuse need or both, so um, a whole lot of folks living with all three of those needs. Those folks are a lot of the people who are showing up over and over again in emergency rooms and needing hospital-based care over and over again because their um, health needs are, are out of, um, they're, they're not being controlled with, with preventative care. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that people experiencing homelessness are, are really sort of a great leverage point for being able to address high hospital cost uh, with a couple very simple things, connecting them to primary care that's got wraparound coordinated services and connecting them with permanent supportive housing. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you very much. All right, so Catherine, um, I'm going to turn to you now. Uh, this is where I'm challenging all of you to give your best compact version of some of the fascinating work that you're doing, and hopefully we'll be able to bring it out more in, in the discussion at the second half of the program. And also, Catherine, um, maybe if you could speak up just a little bit. Um, you you have a, a very very nice quiet uh, <laughs> um, voice, and we 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 could stand you 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 don't need to shout, but we can uh, stand you coming forward just a little bit more. Um, so you, Catherine, Craig, Doug, Eby, and John Whittington uh, recently uh, co-authored, and we've got it on ihi.org, a uh, terrific white paper on uh, coordinating care for people with multiple social and health needs, and we did reference that. Uh, it's it's on our website right now and we certainly put it out there on our WHI web pages. What were what are you trying in that paper really in a sense you're you're offering us sort of new thinking, new frame, even some new ideas about uh, kind of methods. Um can you sort of characterize uh what what you think um is is the sort of new um new some of the new ideas you're trying to put out there? 
Sure, thanks. And I'll I'll try to um, <laughs> use my best theater voice. So, um, well, basically, what we did was there were a whole lot of participants in the triple aim who were trying to figure out how to improve the health of people with multiple health and social needs, and we gave ourselves the challenge of working through the the model that um, you can see um, in the paper. Um, the first step being, let's go ahead and identify people with these multiple overlapping needs um, who are often identified by their, their own high system cost, um, again, due to frequent use of hospital-based care. And I think my, my colleagues on the call will probably speak in more detail to that piece, so I'll um, keep that bit kind of short. But the reason we found it important to spend some time identifying who the high-need people were was so we could target this care coordination service to the people who need it most. As, as Garant was mentioning, it, it can be um, more of a cost to offer the care coordination. So we want to use that resource wisely. So we spent some time identifying who are the folks with the multiple needs the, the next step was to outline all the different services that the healthcare team and the community uh, resources out there in the community could offer. So we included um, examples for primary care, certainly, um, sometimes nutrition and cooking education, diabetes education, asthma clinics, uh, community-based mental health care or uh, meth treatment or whatever it might be. And we also included uh, community-based organizations that were offering concrete supports like housing or um, food, this kind of thing. Um, what, what we did then was we said, okay, if, if, all, if the people with all the needs are going to need to hook into a whole lot of these different supports, we're going to need somebody at the center of this work who, who can coordinate between all of those different supports with the person who has the needs. We need to mention also that the person who has those needs also has a whole lot of strengths to take care of themselves. And I think we were all humbled throughout the course of our, our work on this at how well um, people were able to manage things in spite of what we ended up learning were their really um, remarkably difficult circumstances. Um, so when we thought about coordinating the care, we needed to identify one person who was a, a staff of one or another organization, maybe at a housing organization, maybe in a street outreach team, maybe in a primary care office, but a staff member who could sit down with the individual with all the needs, talk with them about their health goals, their life goals, talk about how those two related to each other, um, and then basically outline a plan to meet those health goals and life goals. Um, picking out the resources that that person would need. Some of them need the asthma clinic, some of them don't, right? So we pick out the ones that that person needs. Um, and then the care coordinator really works alongside the individual with the needs and the strengths and um, navigates between all their different health and social care providers. Um, so uh, part of what we were learning also was that until we really started focusing on this, we realized that too often it was the person with all of those needs at the center of the care plan who was kind of the only link between their cardiologist and their psychiatrist and their diabetes educator. And we really were trying to set out to try to solve that and see how could we um, put in some supports in the form of this care coordinator who could then help the individual to connect up between all of those things and help them to understand how taking care of their diabetes had an impact on their other health needs and on their, on their overall life goals. So the model attempted to solve that, um, that problem and also definitely we were always looking at pushing towards better health outcomes at overall lower health care costs. Okay, well, thank you very much. And I'm going to just shoot up two other slides that we, thank you very much, uh, Catherine, two other slides we have um, that I think are kind of interesting and people can download them, one on illness burden and care coordination. And these things are uh, referenced in the white paper. Um, as Catherine has suggested, um, a lot of the, the white paper and a lot of her work were kind of, in some sense, uh, focusing on homelessness and learning a lot about all kinds of issues related to vulnerability and uh, multi 
multifaceted issues um, based on that. And then also there's a slide on care coordination, and this gives you some idea of um, some programs here. And at the bottom there in purple, uh, you'll see New York City, New York Hospital to Home, and that's uh, one of the things that Maria Raven is going to be telling us about. If anyone has just, excuse me, joined by phone and is not looking at their computer as I'm talking and is wondering what she's talking about, first of all, if you want to email us at info at IHI.org, we promise we'll get you the slides. You can also download all these slides. You'll be prompted to do so or asked if you want to when you also log off the program. But go ahead and email info at IHI.org if you're looking for these slides. All right. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, And I'm going to have Maria hold on for just a moment. We're going to jump the pond, and I'm going to go back to to Gatting because I really feel like some of Maria's work in New York City is kind of uh, now building on some of the early innovation uh, that went on there. So you're on, uh, you're much too young for me to call you the grandfather of virtual wards (laughs) and (laughs) predictive modeling. Um, So I I don't dare do that, but you've you've done a lot in a short amount of time, and I'm I'm giving you an even shorter amount of time right now uh, to explain uh, some of the groundbreaking work that you've done. Go ahead. Okay, well, that's very kind. Um, the, the story behind it actually relates back to a, a colleague of, of Maria's uh, and mine called Professor John Billings from New York University. Uh, John was hired by the National Health Service in England to develop a predictive risk model for the NHS, for the National Health Service. And what this model does is it allows us in England to identify which individuals in our population are at high risk of an unplanned hospitalisation to an acute care hospital in the next 12 months. So I was working uh, in an area of London called Croydon at the time when this model was being developed by Professor Billings, and the question we were all asking ourselves was, well, what are we going to do with this model? For the first time ever, we're going to know who's going to come into our acute hospitals if we don't do anything. What can we do to to work with these individuals to try and keep them healthy and reduce their risk of hospitalisation? Now, the, the, the sort of formal line that was coming out of the ministry at the time from the Department of Health was that these individuals should be offered the care and support of a case manager, an individual case manager. Uh, they gave them a rather quaint name. They called them community matrons, which is a Victorian name, but that, that was the official policy. Um, I was thinking this sounded a bit... A uh, bit daft, really. Um, Maria earlier was telling us about how complex these high-risk patients are with their multiple uh, healthcare needs, substance abuse needs, um, mental health problems, and all the rest of it. And I felt that just having one case manager would be too much to ask of any individual, doesn't matter how fantastic that case manager was. And so virtual ward, the idea was there was to try and bring together a, a multidisciplinary team to try and help these patients, recognizing how complex their needs were. So a virtual ward is a very simple concept. In fact, it's nothing new. All we've done is to link together two separate concepts. The first is this predictive risk model, and the second is a hospital-at-home concept. So if you, if you don't remember anything from my, uh, my talk this evening, it's just that a virtual ward equals predictive risk model plus hospital-at-home. The idea was, as I was saying, rather than waiting for these patients to come into hospital as an, as an emergency, why don't we take the, the coordination of a, of a hospital team out to the individuals a year in advance uh, to try and keep them healthy? Oftentimes, you'll have patients coming into hospital as an emergency with an acute problem, for example, with a, maybe a urinary tract infection. The patient will get treated for that infection, and it's only at that point then that the full multidisciplinary team of a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, a pharmacist, a physician, a nurse, all come together and try to optimize that patient's care. So, as I was saying, what we try to do is to take that coordination out into the community a year earlier. Um, <coughs> excuse me. The the idea was started, uh, as I said, in, 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 in Croydon in South London, but a number of places around the UK um, have decided that they'd like to adopt the model as well. And so virtual wards have started popping up across England and increasingly in Scotland and Wales as well. Maria is going to tell you about the hospital to, um, to home uh, project, which um, I see as being directly analogous to 
two virtual wards and she'll tell you about how she's improved on what I did originally with her work in, 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 uh, in Manhattan. Uh, but finally, I just wanted to flag up a couple of other virtual wards up in Canada. Um, there's one in Toronto, which is a post-discharge virtual ward. Um, and what they do there is they look at patients on the day of discharge from uh, an acute hospital and they have a predictive model called the LACE model and that calculates for each patient what their risk of readmission back into that hospital is within a 28-day period. And patients who are at high risk, rather than just sending them home, just sending them off into the ether, instead they're managed for that 28-day period on a post-discharge virtual ward. So this is where um, a hospital-based team uh, continues to manage the patients and, and, uh, and sort of uh, discusses them on daily rounds and all the rest of it um, after the patient has gone home. Um, do these things work in terms of reducing hospitalisation? We don't yet know, but there are a number of studies that are currently on the go to try and find out. So there is a randomised control trial underway in Toronto of that post-discharge virtual ward. Um, Maria is involved in a, a randomised control trial in New York. And here in England, we've got, we're studying four separate virtual wards using a slightly different technique called propensity score matching, which we can talk about separately if, if there's time. Okay, thank you. And the main question that's trying to be answered in terms of do they work, what, what, what is uh, the kind of the question that's trying to be answered? The question that's trying to be answered is a good point. So the, the specific question that we're trying to answer is do they reduce the risk of hospitalization? Uh, of unplanned hospitalization. Um, I suspect that virtual wards could do a lot to improve the quality of life of patients and to improve the coordination and, and uh, in Maria's case, to help um, find them a, a more permanent uh, home. Um, but given that they're predicated on making these net savings, if we're going to demonstrate that, we need to show that they're able to reduce uh, hospitalizations. The chart that people can see um, at the moment on, on, on WebEx uh, is quite an interesting point. Uh, this is taken from uh, hospital data for the whole of England, and it spans a 10-year period. And what the analysts have done is to go back five years in time into that intense year and identified a group of patients, a cohort of patients, we're having lots of uh, hospitalizations in that central year and then just looked what had happened to that group of patients in the preceding five years and the subsequent five years. Uh, this chart is just showing you what happens in the natural state. This is the normal course of events without any special uh, intervention and what we see is that five years before they were intense users these patients were having very low rates of hospitalization and it remained low for a number of years and then it suddenly spiked up. But the thing I'd like the audience to notice is how quickly it comes back down again. Mm -hmm. This is that regression to the mean yeah. that we were talking right. about earlier. And the reason that's important is if you were to evaluate our uh, virtual wards or any of these other interventions just using a pre-post methodology, you could be lulled into a false sense of security of thinking that the intervention is having an effect, whereas in fact it was just due to regression to the mean and would have occurred anyway. Okay, thank you. I'm gonna. I, I really feel like I finally understand regression to the mean, and um, you know, it, it it won't mean that somebody's having a you know emotional meltdown or anything like that. But I. I <laughs> I think I, I've got it now. Thank you very much, Garant. Really interesting, and uh, thank you all for. Uh, we're, we're just kind of sliding in some of the slides here, uh, you know, as different things uh, come up. So hopefully you can follow along. All right, Maria Garant gave you kind of a, a a bit of a you know little drum roll there about the work that's going <laughs> on uh, in in New York. So we'll we'll spend a few minutes on that, and then I promise you everyone will open things up for your questions and comments. Thanks. Go ahead, Maria. Sure. So um, what we're doing in New York City is um, there, there are actually uh, six different programs throughout the state. So I'm um, heading up one for the Health and Hospitals Corporation, and it's a um, State Department of Health-sponsored Medicaid demonstration project. So basically the state realized that there was within Medicaid a group of patients that were generating these very high costs, sort of that 20%, although in our group, in our case, it's more like 5%, I would say, um, and wanted to do something to try to improve their health and uh, reduce costs. So what we do is the state uses the, um, the sort of technology that Garrett referenced that John Billings developed to identify the most high-cost, heavy group of high-risk patients, and they give them to us in the form of a list. 
and we try to go out and find them and enroll them in our program, which is sort of akin to a virtual ward. So uh, what we do is we have three different health and hospitals corporations, uh, hospitals involved in New York City, and HHC is um, the largest public hospital system in the nation. So um, what the staff at the three hospitals um, is comprised of is care managers who are overseen by social workers, and then at each facility we have some degree of dedicated primary care. So sort of that multidisciplinary team that Garrett's talking about who's caring for these patients. Um, and then what we do in reference to what Catherine was discussing is we have a bunch of formal agreements with providers of services in the community. So um, housing services, um, substance use services, uh, mental health services, anything that we can't provide directly, we would work with other agencies to try to provide as wraparound services to help coordinate care. And each patient that enrolls gets assigned a care manager. And that care manager is really the glue that holds all the different kind of disparate parts of their care together for the patient. We give the patient a cell phone and program in relevant numbers so that during off hours we have a 24-hour call line or they can call their care manager directly and we can try to do things to avoid hospital, um, hospital admissions or emergency department visits in that way. Um, we hold weekly rounds where, um, as a team, everyone discuss what's, what's going on with the different patients, what got done last week, what needs to be done this week. Um, we review if hospital admissions did occur, um, why they occurred, and what we might be able to do to prevent them. And things like home visits, um, accompanying patients to appointments, um, helping with a lot of things that are not directly things that you might think of as healthcare. So um, getting patients the benefits that they actually qualify for that they're not getting in terms of food stamps and SSI, access to legal services, um, help them learn how to grocery shop, help them move into their new apartment if they're lucky enough to um, actually get permanent supportive housing. All those different things. Um, we hold support groups at the facilities for patients, and it's interesting because what they have in common is they're in this program. Um, and we found that because so many of these people are so socially isolated and don't have the support network that we might have when we're discharged home from the hospital or from an emergency department visit, um, it's really helpful for them to kind of develop this support network that can um, help them solve some of the challenges they have that might lead to their frequent hospital admissions or emergency department visits. Thank you very much. Well, um, it's 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 a lot to uh, take in, um, but uh, there's so much in common, you know, across uh, all the, the work that's being described here and some very, very key concepts. And uh, I know I have a, a bunch of questions, but I've got to wait in line now. And I'm going to ask Matt to remind everybody about uh, how to chat in your questions and comments. And you were just listening to Maria Raven and Gannett Lewis and uh, Kathy. Catherine Craig, uh, my wonderful guest today, talking about uh, care coordination for people with multiple health and social needs. So, Matt, how can people uh, use the chat? Thanks, Madge. I'll keep it short. Uh, you can see on the screen here, uh, please send your messages to all participants. And to do so, you can use the chat window located in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen. Uh, just go ahead and type anything you'd like into that blank white box and click send, and we'll all see it, and we'll answer any questions that we can get to today. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Sarah was obviously had her fingers out right on the trigger there. Sarah is asking, are providers of services being paid through these programs? And, of course, uh, as we all know, things are different uh, in, in the U.K. Uh, than in the States. But uh, let, let me start, since we just heard about uh, things in New York. Maria, what about uh, the that for you? The so the way that our program works is um, the Medicaid pays for all the normal services that these patients would get in terms of health care. So these are all fee-for-service Medicaid patients. Um, then our program is paid for with essentially a grant from the state, um, and it comes in the form of a per-member-per-month rate for every enrolled patient. So for every patient that's enrolled that we have the required number of contacts with, we get a monthly um, fee that um, sort of covers the cost of our program. <laughs> so. Okay. All right. Very good. Uh, kind of, um, Catherine, what, what about sort of providers and sort of how the payment stream works there? 
Yeah, so I think you have a, uh, a slide, Madge, that you might be able to put up now, which was the grid, okay. where we took a look at, um, for different programs in different communities, both who the care coordinator was and what their um, professional background was, and then how the funding stream worked out there. So um, in Portland, Oregon, one of the uh, participants in the AAA initiative was Central City Concerns Recuperative Care Program, which offers a few weeks to a month of respite care to people experiencing homelessness who were leaving the hospital after having procedures done and didn't have a place to recover aside from the sidewalk, which for many obvious reasons uh, doesn't work out. Um, so people were able to come into the respite care program, and there they were working with a um, master social work person who was coordinating their care. In that program, the funding actually came from a, a few different places, mo mostly from a network of eight different local hospitals, where the local hospitals came to the housing provider, Central City Concern, and said, hey, we, we've got a problem here. We've got people who are using the hospital over and over we know their experience in homelessness. We know you do great work with homelessness. Can we work something out? And so they worked out a, a daily rate to pay for that respite care, and most of that daily rate comes from the local hospitals and from a um, Medicaid managed care organization, Care Oregon. Um, other communities work it out different ways. Uh, in Pathways to Housing, which is a permanent supportive housing provider um, all up and down the east coast of the U.S., the Philadelphia um, housing program there offers care coordination through a registered nurse who works on site in the housing and um, that care coordination is paid for through Medicaid billing. Um, up, up the East Coast a bit in the Bronx and in New York you just heard how Maria is able to fund the care coordination through a grant and in the Bronx there's um, similar work happening focused entirely on people um, experiencing homelessness where a street outreach team, the Bronx Works Homeless Outreach Team, is offering care coordination. And that care coordination, since it's offered by a homelessness provider, is paid for entirely through the city's Department of Homeless Services um, till. So okay. different communities are working it out different ways. And obviously, it is largely um, defined by who the population is who's receiving the care coordination. Okay. Can okay. I, Madge, can I jump in for Go a second? Of course. Maria? Yes. I was going to say, you know, it's really important. I'm seeing some of the questions popping up and um, about, you know, who's paying for this. And I think that's, it's a really important question because so much of this is being paid for through grants, which ends, right? So um, it, how does the work continue past that? Um, and in terms of upfront costs as well, you know, HHC and I know the other programs um, within New York State, we did receive some upfront funding from the state, but not enough. And so what happened was a lot of the programs just um, basically covered their upfront costs in advance of receiving any reimbursement from the state, uh, which was a very big deal, and it's not a small amount of money. Um, and the other thing I think it's important to note is that while a lot of these are currently being funded through grants, um, with the onset of health reform, um, the federal government is starting to implement something called health homes, where states can partner with the federal government to get an enhanced reimbursement specifically to provide care coordination services. And it's a big opportunity because there's no new money in healthcare except maybe this money um, to be able to come up with some innovative ways to get paid to provide care coordination, probably mostly within the Medicaid and Medicare program. But that's where a lot of these patients are. And that is potentially a, a more sustainable model than some of these grants. And for my program that I'm overseeing, the thought is it will probably morph into a health home, um, and it would be able to continue um, in that way with continued reimbursement. Okay. Thank you very much. Lots of questions here. Gannon, I'm, I'm going to quickly ask you to address payment. It's, I know it's slightly different there, and then there's another question that came in asking you about impactability. Uh, how do you determine the impactability of patients, and maybe you can explain even what that means. Thanks. 
Sure. So uh, I realise I'm in danger of opening up a whole can of worm about socialised medicine and all the rest of it. But basically the way it works over here is that um, everybody is covered. We have universal health care, which um, the funding for it comes out of general taxation. That goes to the central government and then the central government allocates funds out to what are called primary care trusts, which are local NHS bodies. These uh, bodies then have to pay for hospital care. So if a patient doesn't go into hospital, that primary care organisation gets to keep the money that otherwise would have been spent on hospital care and can use it to invest uh, in, in primary care. So that's the way that they tend to be funded in this country, is that the primary care trusts will, will pay for this. And the hope is that, um, that the, the virtual wards will make a net saving from reduced hospitalisation rates. Um, the question about impactability, yes, I, I was very lucky to spend a, a year in New York a couple of years ago on a Commonwealth Fund Harkness Fellowship, and I was interested in exploring what's happening in the world of predictive modelling. The United States is a good 10, 15 years ahead of the rest of the world in terms of the use of this technology, so it was really interesting to ask various predictive modelling vendors what they were up to. And I conducted about 30 interviews. The, the paper's been published in the Millbank Quarterly, if anybody's interested, but there was a common theme that kept emerging in all of these interviews that I was, was conducting. And what they were saying was this, um, the predictive models are telling us who in a population is at high risk of hospitalization. But in, in reality, what we're actually interested in is the subgroup of those high-risk individuals that we can actually uh, do something with to mitigate their risk. So the way I like to think of it is almost like a whiskey distillery where the first distillation step is our predictive risk model. That tells us who's at risk of a future hospitalization. And then the second distillation step is what's called impactability modeling. And that takes the high risk individuals and tries to distill them down to the people that we can actually do something with. Now, there are various approaches to impactability modeling many of which I think are, are very worthwhile and we should encourage. So, for example, one way to do impactability modelling is to concentrate on patients who have got um, diseases that we know can be managed well in the community to reduce risk of hospitalisation. They're sometimes known as the ambulatory care-sensitive conditions, the ACS conditions. So by concentrating on patients with those diagnoses, we should improve impact. A second way to do it is to look at what's called gap analyses, where you can Compare what the evidence-based literature says is the best way to manage a particular disease or condition and then to look in routine data to identify patients who seem to be receiving suboptimal care. Each time, uh, each gap in their care uh, constitutes an opportunity for us to improve their management. So the more gaps you've got, the more impactable you, got, you are. Um, however, a third way of, of improving impactability, I think we need to be very careful about because it potentially has some negative effects on, on, in, on, on equity and on healthcare disparities. And that is to say, well, we're going to concentrate our efforts on patients that we think are going to be easy to manage and we're going to exclude patients that we think will be really difficult to manage. So one way of doing that is to say, well, patients who've got mental health problems are really challenging to work with. Let's exclude all people with mental health uh, problems from our um, from our preventative care. I was, I was pretty shocked when I heard this because obviously um, that, that's potentially quite discriminatory and, and you've heard from Maria about how um, many of the patients uh, at high risk do have these mental health problems. So I just want to flag that up yeah. to people as a warning that impactability modelling, although it, it can improve cost effectiveness, right. um, could potentially have negative uh, effects on equity. Right, there could well, be... And also I think it's important to note that for the ACS conditions, they basically leave out behavioral health uh -huh. and okay. so you miss those patients and that's you know a big segment a big big segment thank you thank you both Catherine and Garrett um, so kind of a dark side of, of some of this and I think with all of these issues uh, I think when one begins to sort of begin to you know ha have data sort of help with the improvement um, one has to think about you know in whose hands the the data and and what use it's being put to I think I'm going to uh, kind of team 
team up with on a couple of questions or sort of combine, bundle them, I guess. People are asking whether there are commercial health plans that are in any way involved in any of this, uh, more perhaps a question for the states here. Uh, what about looking at uh, intense use of ambulatory care as opposed to focus on emergency sector? And another question which has come up is kind of how long are patients in some sense, uh, you know, able to take advantage of the coordination of a virtual ward? So uh, let me let me uh, ask, uh, May, Catherine, can you speak at all to kind of health plans and also the sort of interest at all in the ambulatory sector? Um, I'm not sure that I that okay. I have an answer about the health plans. Yeah. Um, the ambulatory sector. What, what I could say is that when we when you look at in the states the statistics about heavy use, what you find is that the costly use is the hospital based use. Um, so we found, particularly in all the different communities that we're working on uh, this, trying to solve this riddle in the triple aim. Um, we found that over and over again, people were saying, you know what, we, we really have to sort out the extreme use of hospital-based care. Uh, it just wasn't coming up that overuse of outpatient-based care was was popping up as something that was either happening or costly. Okay. All right. Um, Maria, any, any thoughts at all about uh, health plan interest in any of this work? Well, I know that Kaiser is doing a lot of work in this area, um, and you know, they're in, in, in multiple different communities where, where Kaiser's based. Um, I also know that in terms of New York, um, some of the at least one of the chronic illness demo holders is a health plan, United Health Plan. So they um, have one of the contracts. Um, in New York, as well as Hudson Health Plan, which is upstate. So those are two examples of health plans that are doing this. And I think we're going to see much more health plan participation in things like this when um, the health homes um, reimbursement structure that I was talking about earlier comes to be in the next, you know, six months to a year, because it's going to provide incentive um, via enhanced reimbursement to provide care coordination for for, um, health plans. Okay, thanks. Mike has wondered what about the educational background or training for case managers reporting to social workers in Maria Raven's program in particular, uh, or perhaps care coordinators um, by any other name? Um, What kind of uh, background training, that kind of thing, Maria? Yeah, great question. We thought about this a lot when developing our model. And um, right now, we don't require them to have any kind of license. Um, They have to have basically graduated high school and have had relevant um, work with this type of uh, population that we're working with, although most of our care managers are either college graduates or they, um, in in a few cases, have uh, master's degrees or are working towards them. Um, We do very intense upfront training on a lot of different things, everything from um, our database to training on um, how to work with the homeless population and patients with co-occurring disorders. We do a lot of motivational interviewing training. Um, I would say that in expanding this model, I would think very, very seriously at requiring um, a higher level of education than what we have right now. Um, We have, you know, some really, we have a really excellent staff, but we have to interview a lot of people to sort of get where we need to be. And I would say in any of this, the most important thing is that you find people that really, really want to do this work because it's not easy. And so much of it is finding the right people to um, care for the patient. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Listening to Maria Raven, we're having uh, a, a lots of incredible questions here. Uh, I love it, the way people are really getting into a, a lot of the dimensions of this. There have been a couple of questions that are trying to ask about to what extent primary care is kind of hardwired in. And um, maybe uh, I'll go back to you, Catherine, and we'll sort of quickly go around, um, you know, particularly when there's sometimes a lot of uneven (laughs) availability of primary care, uh, but perhaps in the models that you folks are talking about. Uh, Catherine, let me start with you. Sure, yeah. So most of the programs that were part of the um, initiative that I've been talking about so far, um, they had care coordinators who were housed at one or another place in the community, you know, the street outreach team or the housing program or the 
the part-time, you know, the short-term housing program at Respite Care, uh, or in Maria's program, um, based at the hospital, but acting as a community-based care provider, if, if we could characterize it that way. Um, for the programs that were not Maria's, were not based at the hospital within the healthcare system, each of those programs worked really hard to connect people up with primary care. So um, in Portland, Oregon, they were able to connect people to a federally qualified health center that's actually part of their um, Central City Concern organization, and the individual would get that, that connection to the primary care. The social worker who was the care coordinator would introduce them to folks at the, at the clinic. Um, and the individual would be able to maintain that connection to that clinic for the rest of their life if they stayed in Portland the rest of their life. Um, at Pathways to Housing, the team worked really hard to bring on site into the housing a physician who would be able to be there one day a week um, to be able to take care of all of the different physical and um, some of the substance abuse health needs that were coming out of the, um, the the group of people living there in this permanent supportive housing. So all of the people living in the Pathways to Housing uh, program there in Philadelphia have experience of chronic homelessness. So they've been out um, in experiencing homelessness for a year or more, and they also uh, live with a serious persistent mental illness. So they were getting really fantastic mental health care on site in the housing and what they realized was that they needed to leverage in from the community a uh, physician on site because these folks weren't um, getting to community-based primary care and that was interesting because it was even with the support of the care coordinator they still needed to leverage in primary care on site so the primary care was a uh, important focus of the work regardless of which community we were looking at and the communities all figured out different solutions to how they were going to connect people to primary care really effectively. Okay, thank you very much. There have been a couple of questions asking about, um, you know, the ratio of uh, patients to any single care manager. Uh, Maria, maybe I'll um, ask you to weigh in on that in, in terms of the hospital-to-home program. Sure. So we um, actually just typed it an answer to in case we didn't get to it. Oh, but we have... No, we have see 25 <laughs> patients per care manager. They, they, they build their own caseload, so they go out, find, and recruit the patients um, and build up from zero to 25. Um, and then they are overseen by a social work supervisor who see, oversees anywhere from four to eight of the care managers. Um, and we also have a full-time housing coordinator um, that works full-time on for, with, uh, with all the patients that are um, homeless in the street or shelter. Um, and then, as I mentioned, we have some degree of dedicated primary care. And uh, these ratios, I mean, people are in the program, the, the staff, are running around all day <laughs> so it's you know it's somewhere be between it's, it's it's more than an act team um, in terms of caseload and less than I think what a lot of other programs might have um, and it, it works it works all right but it's a lot yeah interesting Sarah Hopkins Maria is saying that they're learned from our care coordinators and I'm not quite sure what uh, Sarah does and I apologize if it said earlier in the chat that frequently clients have multiple care coordinators and so uh, that in and of itself yes. can become um, <laughs> can't well, find it, one it, or have too many of them yeah it's so funny we experience the same thing and um, what we have to do sometimes because if a patient and this is where part of the problem comes in no one's talking to each other so a patient might have a case manager at the shelter or they might have um, a um, you know case manager at the methadone clinic or both or they have an intensive case manager from something else and uh, what we try to do is upfront have a conference with with everybody to try to designate who's going to do what and try not to step on any toes or duplicate work and kind of decide, you know, who's going to be responsible for, for doing what for the patient, knowing that we would like to take the lead if people will let us. 
Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Garen, a question for you. How sustainable? I mean, does it sound like virtual wards, uh, given all the ups and downs and, uh, or just all the changes going on in the U.K., are virtual wards sort and this whole concept sort of here to stay? Will they continue to burrow through and be foundational, even uh, with all the changes continuing? Um, I hope so. Fingers crossed. Um, I just wanted to come back to a question that you, oh. you, you asked earlier, but I didn't get a chance to, go ahead. to come in on, which is about the length of stay on a virtual oh, ward. Oh, right. Go right ahead. In other words, how long should the patient stay on it? And it, it's a really interesting question. In fact, I've got um, a colleague who's doing a fellowship with me looking at this very issue okay. over the course of the next year. And the reason it's interesting is because I think virtual wards and, and Maria's intervention as well are trying to do two things. And they're firstly trying to optimize the care of, for each individual to get an optimal care plan in place for them but secondly they're trying to act as an almost like a safety net so they serve as a, as a first point of contact if anything happens to the patient we're trying to encourage them to contact the virtual ward team rather than just pitching up in the ER and unfortunately those two things are in conflict because if you're trying to maximize uh, the efficiency of the intervention for optimizing the care of patients then you want to have a rapid turnover of patients getting lots of patients in and out through the system very quickly which would favor a a short length of stay right. but on the other hand if you're interested in providing this safety net then instead you'd want to hang on to the patients for a much longer period so we're really not entirely sure what the best approach is um, around the country various virtual wards have adopted different policies some of them just use clinical opinion so when the clinical team decide collectively that this patient is ready for discharge from virtual ward then that's when it happens others will have a fixed length of stay uh, they'll say for example the patient will be with us for 12 weeks or whatever it might be. Um, another approach is to have uh, an, a period of active management followed by a period of basically putting the patient on the back burner where you don't actively discuss them on a ward round, but if the patient was to call in, then you'd make your services available to them. And then finally, another approach is to keep an eye on what's happening to their risk score. So if the risk score starts to go down, then you can use that as a prompt for discharging the patient. Okay. Uh, but coming back to your original question, I, I, I suppose it's, it's going to hinge largely on what these various evaluations show. Right, um, right. If we're able to demonstrate that they can make net cost savings, then I would hope that they're going to spread quite rapidly. If they don't, then I don't think that's the end of the story because I'm not aware of any virtual wards that are using an impactability model to try and tease out which individuals uh, are most likely to respond to this type of care. So, so I'm hoping that um, <laughs> either we'll demonstrate straight away that they're cost effective, or if not, we can try and improve um, our case finding process through impactability and also improve the, uh, the efficiency of the way that these wards operate in reality in the same way that there are lots of attempts underway to improve the efficiency of hospital wards. Okay. Well, you know, all of this just, uh, you know, argues for, uh, with many topics here on WHI, but this one in particular, there's an interesting kind of research question in terms of what impact these things really are having, uh, how sustainable are there, and I think uh, Garrett, I'm going to have considered what you just said, your last word, at least for the program, since we're getting up to the top of the hour. But I want to just very fast get Maria and Catherine in here, if folks can just uh, stand by for another couple minutes. And just uh, as, as sort of final comments, do you see anything going on with health reform right now at the national level or as things kind of grants sort of um, come forward that are going to help enable the kind of work that you're involved in? Maria, start with you. Sure. So um, I would say the main uh, the main thing that's going to be helping to evolve this sort of work is what I ha I've already mentioned a couple of times, which is the Health Homes Initiative. Um, I think right now it's allowing states to sort of get an advance on health reform implementation in 2014 by trying to come up with some, you know, novel and hopefully effective ways to provide care coordination and get this enhanced reimbursement. Um, you know, in terms of what health reform holds, I think there's still a lot of questions there. Right. And so I think for now, that's the most solid thing that we have and that we have to hope that it will continue into 2014 because it will be effective. Okay. And Catherine, real quickly? Yeah, I, I echo that. And there's a couple other opportunities that I think are coming out of health reform. One is the Medicaid home and community-based care waivers, which can pay for this sort of services to be delivered out in the community, uh, largely in people's homes. 
Um, and it's possible, though, of course, the accountable care organizations are still taking shape. It's possible that that um, reform work might offer opportunities for community-based care providers to provide this sort of coordinated care that could better provide care for whole populations of people. All right. All right. Well, my uh, sincere thanks to Garant uh, Lewis uh, from uh, calling from um, England today. We've had Catherine Craig from Washington and Maria Raven in New York. Thank you all very much. You've been very generous with your time today. Your work is uh, quite impressive and uh, we'll stay with it. And I want to also thank all participants uh, today. I want to remind you as you're logging off, as some of you are, uh, that you can uh, download slides that you saw today. You can also download the chat. And if you were just tuned in via the phone and not the computer, uh, don't hesitate to email info at IHI.org to get these same materials. Uh, Also, by tomorrow morning, there will be a very handy resource document uh, filed on, uh, posted on W, excuse me, IHI.org, as as well as the audio of today's program. Um, I also want to uh, acknowledge that we've got another WIHI coming up on July 7th, Improving Healthcare, the Global View. We got some of that today from Garant Lewis, but uh, next, in two weeks, we're going to have Lord Nigel Chris, Pierre Barker, and Pedro, excuse me, Pedro Delgado, a lot of syllables there, and uh, we'll be talking about uh, their experience experience and what we're really learning when one takes a global view of health care improvement. The people who help make this program possible, there are many, Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, Daisy Recto, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and John Godier. And we've got some fun music that opens and closes the program, original music by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Sapasoa on piano. So we covered a lot of ground today. Thanks for joining us on the ride. Uh, don't hesitate. If there were some questions you really, really, really wished we had answered, go ahead also and send that to info at IHI.org, and we'll try and uh, round up our guests uh, for some additional information. It's my privilege, as it always is, to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. <laughs>